Uh, welcome to Brettonomics, brought to you by the Bretton Woods Committee. I'm Nancy Jacklin, and I'll be hosting this podcast series about the institutional framework for international monetary and economic cooperation, which started in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference. Two institutions were created then, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. In our prior two podcasts, we talked about the IMF's um, key mission in promoting a smoothly functioning international monetary system, and in that connection, also providing short-term financing to allow orderly economic adjustments by member countries. We also talked about the key role that the IMF plays in resolving sovereign debt crises and promoting orderly debt rescheduling when it's needed. Uh, when we talked about the 1990s, um, we, we looked at the, the great change in the variety of um, uh, investors uh, in sovereign debt and also the variety of financial uh, market instruments and how that complicated both crisis prevention and crisis resolution. What happened then was capital flows could be very large and shifts in sentiment sudden and extreme as we saw with the 1994 Mexican crisis. These changes in capital markets resulted in a number of changes at the IMF in their focus, both in terms of tools to try to predict vulnerabilities and prevent crises, and also in the approaches to resolving them. Well, even greater changes occurred in the late 1990s. The Asian financial crisis and then the default by Russia on its sovereign debt, which itself contributed to the failure of a large U.S. hedge fund, put at risk the stability of the broader financial system. These crises caused a new policy focus on vulnerabilities to the system because of how financial institutions and financial markets operate, and it led to additions to the cooperative institutional framework to deal with them. Today, my conversation will be with Carolyn Atkinson. Carolyn was at the heart of the storm in the late 1990s as a senior official at the U.S. Treasury Department handling international monetary and financial policy issues and can give us a real insider's view of the period. She does that with a breadth of other experience, however. She served in the White House as the Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics from 2011 to 2015. She also served for close to 20 years uh, in staff and senior positions at the IMF in various stages in her career, as well as at the Bank of England for a few years. She's been in the private sector, including as head of global policy at Google, and now as a strategic advisor at Rock Creek Asset Management. Well, welcome to Brettonomics, Carolyn. Thank you, Nancy. So let's dive right in and uh, talk about that Asian financial crisis in the late 90s that started with Thailand. Tell us about it. How did it start? How did it evolve with that country? Well, in one way, the features of the crisis were quite traditional the kind that the IMF and the international community had dealt with many times. Thailand had borrowed a lot of money from abroad while times were good and allowed its current account deficit, the excess of imports over exports, to balloon. Government had also fixed its exchange rate against the dollar, in effect promising Thai citizens, banks and businesses that they could get dollars from the central bank at a fixed price in terms of the domestic Thai baht currency. Now, when global monetary conditions tightened in mid-1995, the U.S. Fed raised rates to curb inflation, investments in the U.S. started to look more attractive to foreigners than risky 
investment, riskier investments abroad. Eventually, international creditors were no longer willing to go on lending to Thailand. For a while, the government stuck to its fixed exchange rate policy and ran down reserves and actually borrowed um, in the futures market to allow to payments for imports and debt repayments. But that couldn't go on forever. The government, the central bank, ran out of money, the exchange rate crashed, and Thailand was forced to go to the IMF for an emergency loan. That was classic IMF territory. What was different about this crisis and uh, involved the financial sector was that Thailand's foreign currency borrowing had been done not by the government, as was typically the case in earlier crises, but by Thai banks and non-bank financial lenders. They had been encouraged to borrow abroad by the government with the idea of developing an offshore financial center, and that turned out to be very dangerous. Thailand's financial sector was thus deeply embroiled in the Thai crisis. The banks and non-banks had on-lent funds to domestic Thai borrowers, often real estate companies, other private sector companies, whose businesses did not generate foreign exchange. When the Thai baht collapsed against the US dollar or when it threatened to collapse, the loans turned bad. And that turned the exchange rate crisis into a domestic financial crisis as well. And then, uh, as we saw with Latin America, usually when one country has a crisis, uh, it, there's contagion. So how did the contagion spread in Asia? You're absolutely right. Foreign creditors started to look. Uh, they were worried about losing money in Thailand, and they started looking for similarities in other countries. And just as in Latin America, they looked immediately in the region. Mm-hmm. They found these similarities. Indonesia, Malaysia, and other Asian tigers that had looked so uh, promising and attractive to foreign creditors had also built up borrowing that was now, in these tighter conditions, more difficult to pay back. Their fixed exchange rates also came under attack. Malaysia adjusted its policies without resort to the IMF, but Indonesia had a full-blown crisis that actually spread from an economic problem into a political one and spilled over a little bit into Singapore because Singapore is, after all, so close to Indonesia. The collapse of confidence in those Asian tigers was a bad enough shock to the global financial system. But what came next was worse. Korea, the 11th largest economy in the world at that point, and a new member of the so-called Rich Nations Club of the OECD, came under attack from financial markets or borrowers were pulling out of their money ahead of crucial elections at the end of 1997. That was the crisis that really woke up political and national security leaders. After all, Korea is a major ally of the United States. But apart from the politics, the crisis was terrifying for financial officials around the world. Because of the OECD membership, Banks in major countries could lend to Korean entities without putting aside any additional risk capital, risk-weighted capital. So large and interconnected banks in the US, the UK, Europe, and Japan had lent billions of dollars to Korea without worrying about its ability to repay. As in Thailand, Korean banks had borrowed in foreign currencies, often short-term, to lend on to domestic Korean companies. These were typically state-favored conglomerates or tribals, many of which were becoming bankrupt. 
suddenly as the foreign banks stopped refinancing their loans and the companies uh, could no longer borrow, the banks could no longer borrow uh, from abroad and indeed needed to re make repayments, the Korean government began to run out, run out of the dollar reserves needed to sell to the Korean banks to repay these loans. And as in Thailand and Indonesia, the government was trying very hard to hold off any depreciation of its currency, which would in turn make the domestic bankruptcies uh, more dangerous or more likely. So for a while, Korea resisted asking for any help from the IMF or others. And the government was trying to buy more, to borrow more, but it's reluctant to pay the high interest rates that were now being demanded by private bank creditors to roll over loans. And each day the offers got worse. I remember working in the US Treasury that uh, the leaders there were very worried, as was the Fed. Uh, this was such a big problem that the IMF looked too small for it. And every time the government thought, okay, we will pay those high interest rates from yesterday, uh, banks asked for yet higher rates. So the situation was just getting worse. In a few tense, short weeks between Thanksgiving and the new year, the United States and other nations where there were major creditors jawboned their banks into agreeing to roll over loans, but only on conditions. First, that all the other banks in a similar situation did the same. Also, that the Korean government, the government itself, would guarantee the obligations of its banks. And then that there would be backing from the international community. Obviously, the IMF and the World Bank, which made enormous commitments to lend to Korea in exchange for a rather traditional center policies, but also uh, there was backing bilateral loans from the United States and other major economies uh, for this short-term package. So the US, together with others, agreed to rather extraordinary new bilateral loans to backstop that deal. So that it's, it was all, all pretty harrowing. And I remember from the time that there were both at the time and, and afterwards, there was a fair amount of criticism of some of the IMF's programs. And, and in Thailand, for example, I remember issues, issues that were raised uh, involved the IMF's not having sort of called the Thai government out sooner for policies that weren't sustainable, including pegging their exchange rate. But the IMF basically wasn't getting any traction with the Thai government. They weren't, they weren't taking the advice. Uh, and the IMF, of course, was afraid to call things out publicly and, and be blamed for a run, right? The other problem I remember with Indonesia is that Indonesia clearly had a big problem with corruption. And the IMF program went far beyond traditional programs in, in terms of not just the conditionality needed to address the immediate crisis, but there was a lot of conditionality yes. related to corruption. And there's one photograph I will never forget from uh, one of the major newspapers at the time with the managing director, Michelle Kandasu, standing behind um, uh, Indonesian officials who were seated at a table uh, signing their IMF commitments. And uh, 
and he the man had it, his he had his arms crossed. Yeah, and and he and and he really looked like the Lord High Executioner. I mean, it was really a terrible photo op, <laughs> and it, it kind of symbolized uh, the problems uh, in relations. So, tell me, what was done to try to deal with what was a very difficult situation in terms of a, a, a better framework? Right. Well, one reason why the crises were so surprising and not easy to manage was that none of these countries had experienced debt distress in the 1980s when much of Latin America, some of Eastern Europe and the Philippines went through multiple IMF programs and debt restructuring. So there was really a need for a better dialogue. And one thing that... um, we realized in the G7 and in the United States was that um, there was a gap, there were gaps in this in the system. How had the world come so close to a global financial crisis with the vibrant Asian region suffering uh, in a way that led to hardship and political turmoil? And by the way, what we call the Asian crisis is in Asia, at least it was for a very long time, referred to as the IMF crisis. Um, So as G7 ministers and governors were anxiously discussing developments in the crisis, comparing notes, especially after Korea, about the threats to the major global banks in their jurisdictions, it was clear that they needed to understand better what was happening in the borrowing countries, as these were now a part of the global financial system. And the traditional G7 and even the broader G10 that had fostered that fostered collaboration amongst uh, central banks were comprised of the major industrialized or advanced countries. They didn't include the new emerging markets that accounted for a growing share of the global economy and, we were now learning, were entwined with increasingly complex financial markets. So new fora were needed. The first was, uh, that was developed was really a framework for policy dialogue, uh, the G22. It was the brainchild, supposedly, of President Clinton and Singapore's then leader, Lee Kuan Yew. It's said that while they were golfing together on the sidelines of another uh, meeting in, uh, of Asian and Pacific economies in 1997, they agreed that the G7 was too narrow for consideration of an Asian crisis, whilst the Bretton Woods institutions did not have sufficient direct representation from Asia. The IMF had technical expertise. In theory, it represented all member countries on its executive board and the higher level, but still interim committee of finance ministers and central bank governors. But in part because of the way that the constituency system worked, and in part because the quota system of shares had not caught up with the changing global economy, neither the board nor the interim committee fully represented Asia. So I remember at Treasury, we pulled together a list of key countries who mostly did not have their own board seat at the IMF, but whose economies had grown and whose views clearly needed to be taken into account. We began to reach out to finance officials to develop, you know, the kinds of relationships we had with G7 partners and G10. And I remember many evenings sitting in the office trying to reach a counterpart in Indonesia, not finding anybody really willing to take my call. Um, And the embassy, our embassy, could only be uh, helpful up to a point because economics and finance was not their focus. Um, Eventually, we 
we found enough uh, interlocutors and we called a meeting at the Willard Hotel in downtown Washington of representatives of 22 key countries, one, some from every uh, region, major emerging market economies, and the G7, all of the G7, but not the, the smaller European countries in the G10. So the IMF was not so happy about this because they saw it as a potential dilution of its influence. And that was not the idea. There was a goal, however, of leavening the uh, presence of so many Europeans on the IMF board and so on with an admixture of policy policy, uh, officials from the rest of the world. That didn't go down so well in Europe, where smaller but still important countries such as Netherlands, the Bel- Belgium and others were annoyed at being left out. And the result was uh, a swelling of the group during 1998, as uh, it was easier to accept the original members to accept a growth. Um, but it got finally to 33 countries by the fall of, of 1998, which was clearly an unwieldy number uh, that nevertheless met in the margins of the IMF World Bank meetings in October 1998 as the Brazil crisis was brewing. But you found, I assume, that that notwithstanding the growth, that it really did improve the dialogue and the the buy-in, I guess, um, of of the emerging markets economies, that they were part of the system and that they needed to be responsible members of the system, and that once they had a seat at the table, they were more willing to, to do that. That's absolutely right. And there were, uh, I do remember the finance minister of Brazil at that time and during Brazil's crisis, uh, Pedro Malan, saying that he just felt that this forum was much better because he had a seat at the t- table. He felt like an equal member and he could um, talk directly to the countries in the G7 and so on that were that had seemed to be uh, sort of leading the way always in what was happening at the IMF Uh, so it was more of a kind of equal partnership so then what happened you had to do something shrink that G33 we know there's a G20 we know where it's going yes how how did it happen Carolyn Exactly right. Well, the G33, I think everybody agreed that was too many. We were squished into a huge, into a rather long and narrow uh, dining room in uh, in a hotel to have this meeting. And there was, but at the same time, there was acceptance that this forum was going to survive. Mm -hmm. And so there was a decision both to beef up the interim committee of the IMF and make it permanent. It was called then the International Monetary and Financial Committee, the IMFC, which it still is, and to shrink down to, uh, it ended up being 20 members. I think actually it was 19 for a while and then 21 sometimes. It included European uh, representation. And to make sure that it wasn't just countries, um, but bringing together all of the main players in the international system, and this is different from the G7, mm-hmm. the group included the heads of the Bretton Woods institutions, managing director of the IMF, president of the World Bank, the chairs of the uh, policymaking committees for those institutions, the IMFC and the Development Committee, also the head of the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, where central bankers met, and the 20 countries included accounted for 80% of 
of global GDP, and they had clear political power. Okay, well, that, so that, that tells us how we got to the G20. Now I want to back up in time a little bit because um, there was uh, a Russian uh, crisis Indeed. that, that uh, came, what was affected by, if not totally caused by, the Asian crisis. Uh, and can, which led to Russia's default in 1998. Can you explain what was going on there, uh, and uh, and then what what the impact was of, of right. that event? Well, in Russia, it was clear during the uh, 1990s that uh, it was you know there's obviously a very difficult transition, but a great interest in supporting the transition from the uh, former Soviet Union, and. There were a number of IMF programs, uh, mostly, as often happens with IMF programs, some of the targets weren't missed. But that became sort of more and more clear that Russia was not uh, able to live up to all of the negotiated uh, promises. And in particular, uh, inflation, they had a fixed exchange rate in an attempt to bring down inflation. But as inflation didn't come down, then the exchange rate became more and more out of line. And the market uh, believed that, in the words of one of the financial market participants, Russia was too nuclear to fail. We're used to the banks being too too big to fail. This was too nuclear to fail. So there was very little expectation that uh, that Russia would be, quote, allowed to fail. However, in the summer of uh, 1998, uh, the IMF did pull the plug or, or the major shareholders could no longer go on support, putting more money into this uh, hole of the balance payments crisis. And um, markets got a tremendous shock because suddenly uh, the exchange rate was uh, moving very dramatically. There was uh, then the a global financial squeeze, a global credit squeeze, and it turned out that many there were many connections that I think policymakers, maybe financial market participants knew about them, but policymakers didn't really know that some Russians had invested in Brazil, some Koreans had invested in Russia or different institutions, um, and so the troubles had really uh, gone from, as surprising as it may seem, out jumped outside Asia to include Russia and then trigger uh, problems in Brazil. And that was partly also because markets began to focus on, well, where else is there an exchange rate that well, looks Well, that's right. I mean, Russia, Russia, part of it was the Asian crisis and that, in that uh, possible, the, the importers of Russian oil were going through their own policy adjustments and shrinking their economies. So, so Russia was having problems keeping its commodity exports up. Plus, as you said, the investors were looking at where's the next risk and were starting exactly. to get nervous, uh, even though they thought, you know, nobody's really going to let Russia fail. Well, the I guess the IMF had agreed that they put about $8 billion into Russia. Then they had a new program for $11 billion, uh, and it was really tied to major budget uh, uh, changes because um, essentially Russia had gotten its inflation down solely by having this fixed exchange rate. Exactly. And they were doing it all through monetary policy and not through fiscal. So 
when the when the Duma, when the Russian legislature refused to pass the IMF conditionality uh, requirements, um, the, basically the game was over. I mean, right. was there was no more saving them. Well, as you said, it spread, and and it spread oddly enough to the United States. So. Um, there was a large hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management. And as a result of the Russian default and the impact on markets, which was a complete um, rush by investors to safe assets and sales of just about everything else, um, this hedge fund, which was an unregulated investment fund, found that its, its big bets, which had been uh, bets that markets would behave in normal ways uh, was really hit by the by the impact of the default, and they also had made their own investments in Russian bonds. So um, large U.S. banks, European banks, some investment banks were owed about three to five billion dollars by LTCM. <laughs> if LTCM had had to repay all the debt it owed on. Then on call because they were they were not going to be able to meet some of their obligations, they would have had to have massive uh, sales of their assets, fire sales of their assets, which would have driven down financial asset prices even more and caused greater dysfunction in global markets. So the U.S. put enormous pressure on the creditors of LTCM to um, not to require repayments, to try to stretch uh, things out. Uh, and um, eventually things calmed down and turned around a bit. But this this um, cliffhanger really further unnerved policymakers and increased the urgency of trying to improve the management of risks originating in the financial system. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we had so we had uh, you described the financial uh, system and markets uh, connections in the Asian crisis, and now we see this in the kind of unregulated markets of the advanced economies, hedge funds, and other sort of non-bank institutions. Um, what did the G7 uh, decide that uh, they thought needed to be done to improve the operation of the system? Well, it, at that point, there was another need for a new forum. Uh, I think that we realized, or it was re recognized, that the divide between central banks and other regulators who really knew in detail about both domestic financial systems, obviously, but also about the interconnections of their institutions with similar institutions overseas was rather separate from the structure of um, the, the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF, the understanding of economic policies that was the traditional role of the IMF and uh, the discussions amongst finance officials uh, in ministries. And what the G7 then felt was that you needed to bring these two groups together, the regulatory experts together with the uh, broader macroeconomic experts and um, an institution or, or a body that was called the Financial Stability Forum that again began as relatively informal uh, was established. I think its first meeting was again on the, on the margins of the IMF World Bank meetings by now we're into 1999. And the, uh, 
the Financial Stability Forum looked at the risks across different institutions and brought together uh, the views of the, um, you know, these, all of the regulators, actually, not just uh, bank regulators, but also securities ones, with a view to creating some standards for financial markets and financial institutions that would have broad international acceptance and also uh, spread or have a better understanding of the unregulated parts of the financial system, such as hedge funds. And there was this developed this term called shadow banking, which uh, in Central Europe and Germany, which people are still trying to understand, they're still trying to understand. <laughs> and it was kind of a dirty word for dirty phrase for <laughs> Angela Merkel. I remember she always wanted to you know, go after shadow banking, which she saw very much as uh, an Anglo-American problem. Kind of problem. <laughs> and um, and they also there was a a move in the IMF to improve its understanding of capital markets and of central banks and their regulations. So, uh, and to incorporate understandings of uh, financial sector or financial sector assessments to do these detailed assessments country by country, and then to incorporate that into the IMF's traditional regular uh, surveillance work. Right. Right. Well, this is this is a great. Um, I, I thank you for this great insider's view on on both what happened uh, in the 1990s, but also why we ended up with some of these institutions we ended up with. And and uh, when I look at what was done to the institutional framework, I think it's it's useful to kind of pull it together a bit for our audience. I mean, first you have the established institution of the IMF with rights and obligations of members with a clear mission to support a smoothly functioning international monetary and financial system. And as you pointed out, it has the governance structure where it has permanent staff, it has a managing director and deputy managing directors. They report to the executive board and that executive board is comprised of um, single countries, larger countries, but also uh, constituencies that are elected by um, uh, other countries that are not as large. So the total size of the board, you know, maybe sort of 20, 23, 24, but small enough that it can effectively operate. After 1999, um, the interim committee, as you said, was converted into the IMFC. And that has the same composition as in, in terms of country membership as the executive board, but it meets at the level of finance ministers and central bank governors. And that body really gives high-level policy direction to the uh, to the IMF and what the executive board and the, and the management and staff will do to carry out policy priorities. Um, added to the IMF now are the G's, right? <laughs> the G7, which has been around since the 1970s, um, and it was really established by the leading industrial countries, the major economies to coordinate at the finance ministers and sometimes at, at the head of state level uh, on substantial issues affecting financial markets and the economy. And those, those meetings, particularly at head of state level, often go beyond economic issues. Absolutely. Um, and uh, then what we saw in the 1990s is that a similar coordinating mechanism was needed as the world economy evolved and uh, financial markets evolved. And so you had the G22 and then the G20 for a similar um, body where you could be 
uh, coordinating policy positions. Now, in today's world, the G20 is looking like a, a less well-functioning institution because of uh, political developments. And the G7 is looking like a more and more essential one uh, yes. to try to, to at least have like-minded people try to figure out where to go next. Uh, but but going on through all of this, which is important, are the Bretton Woods institutions, which are permanent and do and do provide um, important uh, obligations of members. And then the Financial Stability Fund was established to help uh, get a better handle on global financial uh, regulation and on uh, systemic risk. So in our next podcast, we're going to look at a lot of these issues some more. We're going to be looking at the 2000s, in particular, the great financial crisis of 2008 that really tested the resiliency of the of the uh, international cooperative framework that we had developed in the 1990s and um, and and the creation of, of kind of new entities or revised entities um, the subsequent podcast is going to take a very close look at the framework for coordination of international uh, financial institution regulation and financial markets regulation and how that fits uh, in, into the big scheme of things in, in kind of a more detailed way. So we hope you'll be with us. You'll join us. The story continues. And certainly what started at Bretton Woods has not stayed static. Thanks very much. Thank you.